I want to talk with you this morning about seven symptoms of pride. Not just pride itself. I've talked about this subject many times, and I, I don't really make any apology for that. I used to apologize for talking about stuff. I'm not going to. I'm too old to apologize for that kind of stuff. I, I think this is a very significant subject. You just can't be a child of God and be eaten up with pride. Uh, for everything I've read in the Bible from front to back, this is the one thing that God hates. This is the one thing that, is, that caused Satan to be who he is and lift himself up against God was self-importance or pride. It's the one thing that keeps people from God. It's the one thing that makes Christians sometimes so miserable and so hard to be around is their pride. So this isn't just something that people of the world may have. And that, 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 that's the danger of it. Pride is a human problem. And I think sometimes pride is, is misunderstood as to what it might be. We could probably spend some time talking about that. In fact, we can, as I mentioned before, C.S. Lewis, I'll paraphrase him. He says, you know, you could work so hard on, on, on being humble and getting rid of your pride that one day you wake up and you say, I'm proud I'm so humble. You know, so, so there you go. It's a continual problem. And the wor- one of the worst things, I, I think this is in light. I don't know what to make of this. Some things they strike me, and it takes me a while to process what it might mean. But when I tried to look up some kind of graphic on the word pride, 99%, I had to do a very specific search to find something that wasn't a gay pride march or a gay, gay flag. That's the only thing that pops up on Google. That's all they want you to see is the gay, gay pride. Now, I think that's enlightening. I'm not just, oh, that's terrible. I'm, I'm saying that's interesting that even if you wanted to start a movement to say it's okay to be gay. I, I'm not endorsing that. I'm saying if you if you want to start a movement to say it's okay to be gay, why would you pick the word pride to be the basis of that movement? Isn't that a good question? Why pride? Because pride is what exalts itself up against the will of God. That's exactly why. It's intentional. It means I'm going to do what I want, and I'm proud of it, even if it's made, if it's wrong. I'm proud of what I am and what I do, and nobody can tell me anything different. This is not just the spirit of homosexuality. It's an element of, of that kind of homosexuality, maybe not even the majority, but it's certainly an element of secularism of the world that we live in. I will do, and, and the Bible defines that basic spirit of I will do what I want, and no one can tell me any different than that, as the flesh. We, we are warring against the flesh, both in us and in the world around us, and that's the spirit of the world. This is the pride of life that John talks about being the spirit of this world, the pride of life. And so it's a human problem. I think it goes back to the creation, before we even get into the scriptures about this too much, in a very general way, it goes back to the world as God made it. God could have made any kind of world he wanted to, I suppose, theoretically. I think he made a world that corresponded to his nature and his purposes in creating it, and it corresponds. And so therefore, once God made the decision to make a world that corresponded to his purposes, which was love and mercy and grace, then it had to have certain characteristics. It eliminated a whole lot of other possibilities. It has to have a certain characteristic. And one of those characteristics it had to have was freedom. Freedom to choose. Because without the freedom to choose... There can be no real expression of love. If God intended to show love to man and have man show love to him, the necessary element for that to be true has to be some element of freedom or freedom of choice. 
And once God made a world in which humans and even angels were free to choose to love him or not, he introduced an element of pride in that fact. Because those creatures, if they're free, can choose to serve themselves. And we do. And have. And will continue to do so. Only those who choose not to serve themselves, but to serve God, to worship him, and him only shall you serve, as Jesus says. Only those will be sort of free from pride. So it's inherently built in to the universe. Now this familiar verse that you've seen in the book of Proverbs, without getting too deep into this this morning about that, is here's, this is so often misquoted. Pride goes before a fall. Ever heard that? Not what the Bible says. Not exactly what the Bible says. What's it say? And it says it's several times in the book of Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, which is a proud spirit, a haughty spirit, before a fall. Haughty is the idea of looking down on other people. It, it, haughtiness is a type of pride. It's more of an outward pride that looks down. And so when a person is busy looking down their nose at somebody, they trip over stuff. Mostly their own selves and what's in front of them. And that's why pride goes before a fall. But pride goes before destruction. And um, I don't tell you how long it goes. Sometimes the pride starts way back here and the destruction doesn't happen to way out there. Some people don't even ever see, some people don't even see the destruction as it's happening. They don't view their life being ruined and them having so many difficulties and unhappiness. They don't view that as a consequence of their pride. There were people, now I recognize, and I told you maybe the other day I was one of them. There, there are many people in our society that this period of the year, maybe from Thanksgiving, just before Thanksgiving till the end of the year, is a very hard time of the year. It, it is for me. Because it just so happens I've lost quite a few people that I love in, during that period of time in, in, over the years. It's just odd how that's happened. I don't, I'm not even going to tell you the names and the circumstances. And it, it's, it has added over the years an element of sadness to these what we call holidays for me. It wasn't so bad this year for some reason. I guess because my daughter moved to poor St. Lucie in the last couple of weeks so with two babies and a son-in-law that I like. So, you know, that took a little bit of the edge off of being separated from my other children and all the loved ones who I miss. But every people suffer with that. But I'll tell you this, whatever I suffer is nothing compared to what I see so many people suffer because they go through this time of the year completely alone, really alone, really alone. I'm not alone. I have five children, a wonderful wife beyond description, five children, 20 grandchildren, a bunch of in-laws. I'm a man blessed far beyond anything that I could ever imagine. And yet I still am sad sometimes. Isn't that, isn't that weird how that is? But on the other hand, many people of my age are completely alone. Some of those people, and they're, they're alienated from their family. Their children, if they have any, don't like them, don't want to be around them. All the other relatives are dead or they don't like them either. And so they're alone. It's hard. And that, that carries on all year. And you know what? Sometimes, and a lot of people I meet, that really isn't their doing altogether. Maybe they have, I always say we all, we all have some part in the things that make us miserable. We all have some part in how our life gets bad like that. We, we can't say, well, it's not my fault. None of it is. It's sometimes your fault. 
And some of it's your fault, but not all the time. And sometimes those things are beyond some people's control. Life has happened to them that way. It's not their fault their parents didn't have any other children, so now that their parents are gone, they have no siblings. It's not their fault that that happened. That kind of thing. Not their fault their spouse died and left them alone. But on the other hand, a whole lot of people are alone and suffering on this holiday because of pride. They've been too stubborn to mend fences and to get along with people and to put aside their own desires to have a family, to have friends, to have to go to a church. A lot of people are alone. They don't. They don't realize the blessing that you have. You have a family. I have a. I have the family I just described is pretty big. You ought to try to take them to a restaurant sometime. Oh my goodness, we can't even find a restaurant to go to, and I can't pay the bill anymore. If we did go, but I have a bigger family. Not just right here, but all over the country. I've got a huge family of people that would take care of me if I needed it, that, that care about me. I don't feel like it sometimes, but they're, they're there. This is a blessing we have in Christ. But you don't get that blessing if you're proud, too proud to help other people, too proud to admit when you're wrong and to make changes in your life. You don't get that. And so this is where the pride comes in and hurts you. And you don't even realize it's happening to you. That's the destruction. That's this destruction that pride goes before that destruction of your own happiness, your own life, your own well-being, you see. But he says it's better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And this other part, a haughty spirit goes before a fall. I was reading just this morning, drinking some coffee, trying to avoid eating another cinnamon roll. Uh, I was eating, drinking some coffee, and I'm reading an article from a blog I follow. A guy named Kerry Newhoff in North Carolina is a church leader expert, a church leadership expert. And he's always writing about this stuff. And he's, he was writing again about the f- big failures of one of these mega church pastors. There have been so many, it's hard to even remember. One of the biggest of the big, Mark Driscoll, out in Washington a few years ago, and they made a documentary on it and how sad it all is, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sitting here thinking, you're the one that's always promoting leadership and, and, and even going against people that want to do something in a church, just pushing them aside and marching ahead with what you want to do because it's for the leadership. He's the one that does that. And sure enough, in the article, he talks about the fact that this was, this destruction was all brought about by pride. Pride goes before a fall. That's what's there in so many of these pastors all around the country that you see, that the public sees, that turns them off from Christ. They don't see humble guidance of someone giving a good example and leading from the word of Christ. They don't see that. Even that person is a pretty confident, cocksure of themselves. I'm pointing at myself. They, they don't see any, they, they just see these leaders that are going to run roughshod over everybody, do what they want, and they end up thinking they can have a girlfriend if they'd like. Don't they? Why does that happen so often? All this adultery that you see in the Bible, false teachers, lust, pride, and adultery all go together. Sexual sins of all kinds. They're all lumped in. You see them in so many people in the Bible, so many verses in the Bible. It's pride. Pride is deadly to Christianity, to a Christ-like spirit. And it really, if you want to attract the people that Christ is trying to call to his body, you got to try to get rid of that haughty spirit. And that's because it uh, it's better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly 
and to divide the spoil with the proud. Here's a long quotation. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in your world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty themselves. And that's one thing that's true. I hardly ever hear any worldly people in the media and other places talk about pride being a problem. I hear Christians talk about being proud. I hear worldly people accuse Christians of being haughty, but I, I don't hear worldly people admitting to it themselves. So he's right about that. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their head about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I've been very, very, very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which, which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. Get that. No fault makes us more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious in ourselves than this fault he's talking about. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. That's another thing about, he's, going to, he's talking about pride here, of course, as you know. The more we have of it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Does that make any sense? That's really true. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's the whole point of this. Of course, that's C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He has a whole exposition about this in the book Mere Christianity, which I highly recommend to you. It'll take every sentence as a whole thing to think about for a while but it's a great book for you to digest, mere Christianity. And he has more to say about pride, which we might come back to later in this book, in this book here. Because what he's trying to say is the whole basis of Christianity is humility, not pride. And yet that's what we see in so many church leaders and churches in the modern era because they've become like the world. They're trying to be like the world and attract people that are from the world who want to stay in the world and call themselves a Christian. And that's why they're like they are, you see. Notice what James said. We do, and I thought about this subject partly because of, we talked about this scripture here a couple weeks ago where James says in James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil. He will flee from you. You resist the devil because he's all about pride. You have to resist him and resist this. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that's why we see this passage that um, we talked about before. Let me go on past that. Oh, oh, too many, too many button pushes here. I'm going to list seven symptoms here. I need a little timer that goes off every minute or two to turn the page. My wife is smiling at me because she knows you can talk for 30 minutes on each one of these seven, which we're not going to do. Or this is a seven-part series, maybe. Anyway, no. Now, these are very simple things, and I don't have a lot of scriptures for each one to look at. But I think they are symptoms that you can look at in yourself, and you can see this could be an indicator. Now, just because you have a symptom doesn't mean you have the disease or a particular disease. We found out, for example, that with COVID, 
Anything that you feel that doesn't feel normal is a symptom of COVID. Okay? Whatever you can think of that people could have, because I've been in a study about this, that's a symptom of COVID. Headache or not headache? Having a headache is a symptom. Not having a headache is a symptom. Having too much taste is a symptom. Not having any taste is a symptom. So, you know, this is why people just kind of shrug their shoulders sometimes. But anyway, these are some things you could look at that might point you in the direction of thinking, maybe I have a problem with pride in some way. One of them is fault. The first one is fault finding. An old Puritan preacher early in American history whose most famous sermon, I guess I read it in school somewhere, was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How's that for a sermon title? Boy, you don't. You can look it up on the internet. It's written out on the Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's about as Puritan and Calvinistic as you're going to come, but it, it's pretty good, pretty effective. And he wrote this in another book on undetected pride. The spiritually proud person shows it in his finding fault with other saints. The eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own that he does not is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. The one who is finding fault with other people is probably trying to not look very carefully at their own self. They're not wanting to spend any time looking inwardly, and so the Duke to busy their mind, they find fault with other people about everything. Now, it's not always wrong to say, you know, you shouldn't have done that. That isn't good. Not wrong to say that's a fault that you have. I've been told I have faults. It's hard to believe, but I've been told that. And it hasn't, it's not an unuseful thing. It's not a destructive thing, particularly. But people, and you know who they, you've seen them, they find fault with everything and everybody that what people do. They find fault. They find fault if people sit too long in a traffic light. They find fault if people jump too quick in a traffic light. And the main thing that distinguishes those two is it's not them that's doing it. Somebody else is doing it. So that's the fault finding. And that's a symptom of pride. To deflect any kind of attention from yourself, you constantly are pointing, look, a squirrel, look, a squirrel. You know, you're doing that with other people. And hopefully nobody's looking at you. And then there is this harsh spirit. Well, I wish Bob was here. Bob Allen. He's, a, as you know, a former policeman. And every time I hear this word harsh now, I think of, I smile, think of Bob, because he, he said he arrested some, or I don't know if he arrested him. He stopped someone one time who he thought was intoxicated or high. And they said, please don't harsh my buzz. That's what they said to him. Think about that. Harsh my buzz. That's a lovely saying for today. You're harshing my buzz by talking to me as a policeman. Well, I don't want to harsh your buzz, but a harsh spirit is a symptom of pride. And let's face it, there are a lot of Christians who have a harsh spirit. They say they've been baptized into Christ, become a new creature, that they serve the Lord, that they love their fellow man, but everything about them is harsh. There's no gentleness there's no mercy, there's no meekness, there's no patience looking forward to how people can improve and encouraging people. There's no encouragement from these people. I ran into plenty of those people as a preacher in my lifetime and before I was a preacher. Jesus says this. This verse isn't, I don't, people don't usually connect this with judgment, with, with harshness, but listen, judge not that you be not judged. The kind of judgment he's talking about here 
isn't saying that behavior is sinful or wrong. That's not the kind of judgment he's talking about. He's talking about the harshness of an unfair judgment against someone, especially one that, like I said a moment ago, is pointing out there when it should be pointing inwardly. He says, here's where verse 2 is the key. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. When you are harsh with other people, without mercy, kindness, gentleness, and patience. That's how God is going to make your life work. That's how it's going to be for you. And and you can say, well, that may be in in this life. It may work out that way in this life. But as often as not, it works out that way in the judgment day. And I'll use this example again. Maybe it's a poor example. When I was a teenager, we used to go to nursing homes every now and then and sing in the church there. They'd take a few, and I was even younger than that. They'd take people over in the nursing home on Sunday afternoons. We'd sing and so forth. I'm not sure that's a custom that's done too much anymore for various reasons, but whatever it is, we used to do that sometimes. And one day when I was 13 or 14 years old, uh, and we'd finished there, a little old lady came up. Can I say little old lady? Is that okay? I know we got a bunch of them here, but anyway. I like little old ladies, as a matter of fact, I always have. But any, in any effect, in any of this, she came up to me and she says, she started telling me about her son and being there. I can still picture her. She's telling me all about this and that, and her son had brought her there and dropped her off, and he said he's coming back to get me and see me, and more or less, come to find out, it's been 30 years since he's been there, something like that. Some length of time. Long time. And I was just, I went away so heartbroken. I was a young boy. So sad, so heartbroken. What a miserable wretch of a creature would desert his mother like that. Because I loved my mother, my grandmother, and that's who he reminded me of. I couldn't imagine anybody doing that. But now that I've lived a few years in this world, yes, there are some of you that are miserable creatures who would drop your mother off and never see them again because you're too concerned about yourself. There are some of you miserable creatures, and you've heard the song, The Cat's in the Cradle. Okay, there's some of you people like that. But then there's a lot of you people I can see. I've met them. I can exactly see why their son dropped her off and left her there. You know anybody like that? They've earned that desertion. Because they were so harsh and so critical. And that son or daughter couldn't do anything right. And everything they did was wrong. And they always found fault. And nothing was ever good enough for them. That's how they raised this child. And finally the child, some children's kids just say, I've had enough of you. You're over there. And they put her there. You know, that's just the way the world is. Sometimes those little old ladies. And I have pity on those people too. Yes. Their harsh spirit earned them a place alone in a nursing home. I feel sorry for them. But let that be a warning to you. Let that be a warning to you about being harsh with people and having this critical spirit that finds no fault. Jesus says, with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Do you think that applies to nursing homes? I think it does. Now, then take a look. And by the way, if you dump your mother off in a nursing home, I don't care how harsh she is, you take care of her. You don't have to hug her and love her like some kind of affection, thinking she's been a monster. But you do have to honor your father and your mother. Let me add that in there. I'm not advocating dropping people off. You have a responsibility to honor your father and mother because of what's good for you, even if they have been a wretch. Now look what James says. This is the half-brother of Jesus. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has, not, who has shown no mercy. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Is that harshness? Harshness comes back to you. Uh, Jonathan Edwards says, Christians who are but fellow worms, listen to that, Christians who are but fellow worms ought at least to treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. Now the symptom of pride is superficiality. Superficial means something that's on the surface. When you look at the superficial characteristics of something, you can only see what's on the surface. You really can't see what's underneath. It's hidden from you by the surface. And it's used in scientific descriptions, but the way we use it in our common language, it means that something is not what it really appears to be because it's been hidden by the pretty glittery outside surface of something. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, verse 5. But when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites. A hypocrite, hypocrites, is a word which means something that's one way on the outside, another way on the inside. It's an actor. It means an actor. Someone who is playing a part. So they're showing you out here what this is. But, it, you know, they uh, these Hollywood movie stars, they show you the face of someone who loves is concerned about the environment, but inside they're getting ready to leave on their private jet. They act like they're so concerned about the poor, outwardly they're telling you this and they're crying about it. Inwardly, they're flying off to Monaco for two weeks and spending more than poor people make in ten years. I'll just use some strange examples. I mean, those are bad examples. But that actors are by nature superficial. They show I played in a the best play, biggest play I was ever in was in college, and I played an old Catholic priest in Mary Queen of Scots and all this stuff. And I got I still got the little cross I wore and the cane I had and all that stuff. And I was the hit star of the show, you know, being this old crotchety Catholic priest. Nothing could be further from what I really am. Judy was in a play one time in Illinois in the community theater. She was in The Sound of Music. And she was one of the nuns. Can you picture Judy in the nun outfit and the habit? And so at halftime, halftime. Do they have halftimes at plays? Well, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it was a halftime to me. At, at halftime of the play, uh, they had the cast could come out and you know mingle with the audience. So I walked up to the nun and began to kiss her. Make out with a nun. I thought that was a great thing to do at that, in that theater. Making out with a nun. Never done that before. <laughs> Haven't done it since. Is she really a nun? She's an actor. And so some people are actors. They're showing you something and they're pretending to be one thing, but they're really something else. She says, don't, don't be like a hypocrite. For, the, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Now surely I say to you, they have their reward. They do it so other people will see them and think a certain thing. What was the real problem of the Pharisees? Pride was their problem. That was what was made, that's what made them phonies, is their pride. Hypocrites. But he says another place a little bit later, or in the next verse, I mean, but you, when you pray, when you pray, you go into your room. They go on the street corner to pray. They stand up in a restaurant, make everybody else be quiet in the restaurant while they pray. You, when you pray, 
you go into your room and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. These are all superficial acts that indicate a type of pride. Superficiality. When pride lives in our hearts, we're far more concerned with others' perceptions of us than the reality of our hearts. Think about that. If you're a proud person, you're often more concerned about what others think of you than what's really there. And so it guides your actions. What other people think of you guides your actions. We fight the sins that have an impact on how others view us. So if it's some outward sin that people can see, we'll fight that sin. And we make peace with the ones that no one sees. This is why so many people are addicted to pornography. Part of the reason why. Because it's sin, sin that nobody sees. And yet they appear to be so righteous and moral sometimes. We have great success in the areas of holiness that highly, are highly visible and, uh, with accountability, but little concern for the disciplines that happen in secret. And then there's defensiveness. Here's Jesus. Isaiah 53, a prophecy of Jesus Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, I don't believe that that verse is teaching me that whenever anybody attacks me, I have to sit quietly by and let them say whatever they want to say about me or my family or anything else and not say a word back. I've been advised that in controversy. Just, just don't, Jesus didn't say anything, so you shouldn't say anything. Well, that's not what the apostles did. They defended themselves. Paul went all the way to Caesar to defend himself, for crying out loud. But on the other hand, I'm not talking about defending yourself from a wrongful assertion by using reason and logic and so forth. I'm talking about people that are just defensive in that they can't take any kind of affront to themselves. Everything touchy, they're so touchy and defensive about everything that you really have a hard time having a conversation with them. There are people I've known that just have a hard time having a conversation because anything I say might blow up in my face. You know that kind of person? I call it navigating a landmine. I've told you before, well, I'm going to be walking on, in a minefield today. And, and I, I know myself, I tend to throw hand grenades at the minefield, but, but I don't mean to. But the fact is, there's some people, they're a minefield. And you have to go along real slow and make sure you move the dirt away from the trigger and not step on that trigger. And you don't know where the triggers are. Anything might set them off. What is the problem? What's the problem there? Were they born that way? Well, I know they were probably born with pride. Pride's the problem. They're defensive because anything that's said to them will be taken as an insult to their pride. They're so high and mighty. And, or they're so afraid that someone might see a fault in them. You know, in my family, and it's probably maybe I made too much of a big deal about it, I, I tried to insult my children once in a while. Make fun of them. Tease them. I call it teasing. Other people got criticized me because I, teasing is lying, they would say. We had a member of the church here who told me that teasing is lying. Okay. 
But I was trying to get my children to not be quite so high and mighty and so sensitive that nobody could ever say anything to them that they didn't like. That they could navigate life where things happen to them that they don't approve of. You know, if you think about it, every day you walk around society, things happen that that are against you, that make you look small. Someone cuts in front of the line or whatever they do, you can be you can take it as an offense if you want. You can be defensive. What's saying here about Christ? Even when they attacked him, he did not attack them back. He wasn't defensive about everything that happened to them. True humility is not knocked off balance and thrown into a defensive posture by a challenge or a rebuke, but instead continues in doing good and trusting the soul to the faithful creator. A truly humble person isn't knocked off balance by every time something happens that's against them or could be perceived as being against them because they know who they are and they they understand it. Yes, it's it's okay if people criticize me. Who am I? It's okay for you to criticize me. Now, that's not taught in our schools of assertive thinking today. That it's okay for you to accept criticism, even unfair criticism, and not get knocked off balance by that. But that that's because pride is a, is a national ethos. It's everywhere we go. And then there is presumption before God. Humility approaches God with humble assurance in Christ Jesus. If either the humble or the assurance are missing in that equation, our hearts are very well might be infected with symptoms of pride. So there's humble assurance in Christ Jesus. The humility is that I know that I do not deserve to be saved by Jesus Christ, and I know that I probably have many faults that need to be corrected. The assurance is that, I, yes, I am a child of God, and I stand in that, and there are some things that I know from Scripture are right, and I'll defend those. You know, knowing that you, having confidence that you know um, what is right and wrong to do, or what true propositions are, is not pride. Maybe more better, more accurately called confidence. It's not pride. Pride is a self thing. It's about yourself. It's thinking that you're always right about everything. Not that you're correct about this thing, which you can can matter. But the Bible says in Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear, respect, and rejoice with trembling. But go before the Lord with fear, with, with worship, and we approach him with trembling because we are not who we often think we are before God. And we ought to approach our fellow man that way too. We should approach other people with, with respect and with honor. And that's the difference between being defensive or going before the Lord with presumption. Another aspect, we'll kind of move along here, that is true of pride is desperation for attention. I should have left this one out because this is a kind of the a kind of hits me real hard among the others. Desperation for attention. Why do you think it is I'm standing up here in front of you every Sunday? <clears throat> Notice what Paul says about Christians. Bond servants here, he's talking about slaves. But in the proper application of this, I think, to modern society, you don't just dismiss these verses because we don't live in a society where there's slavery, servitude, or whatever it may be. These are, it's talking about when you are in a relationship of service to a, a boss, an employer, somebody above you, military, whatever rank it may be, wherever it is. Bond servants, that's, that's all of us in some way. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, 
with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart. There's that fear and trembling again. As to Christ, not with eye service, doing whatever, when they can see you, you do what you're supposed to do. When the boss can't see you, you do what you want. You know, the thing is really killing that, that eye service business is cameras now. Pretty hard to do eye service in a lot of places because there's too many cameras around watching every move that you make. You used to be able to get away with just doing, doing stuff when the boss was there. But Big Brother is always watching now. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He says, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Now, nothing in that description of how Christians ought to act around their fellow man screams out, be a person desperate for attention. Be a YouTube star. Make sure that you you are a Instagram personality and everybody sees everything that you do, you see. But our society is now seems to be built more and more on, you know, social media where you're trying to become a star or notice for everything that you do or don't do. This, I, I like sharing things with people, but there's a whole element of this that feeds into pride and a desperation for attention. And if you're feeling that desperation of, for attention, you should back up and say, what's going on here with this? Why, why do I feel this desperation? Why can't you live your life as a humble servant and serve others and not have to worry about eye service or what other people think of you all the time for doing something? And so C.S. Lewis would put it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's a very profound remark if you think about it. Humility is not just... Uh, trying not to think of yourself at all because we all think of ourselves. And thinking about yourself is not in itself pride. But he says it's thinking of yourself less. It's less attention on yourself and more on other people. It's less attention on yourself and more about the ideas that are being discussed or that need to be talked about or some other important thing and less about how it makes you look and feel about what's going on. So that desperate for attention is certainly a sign of pride. And then then there is neglecting other people. Now, this is a long reading, and I know our time is short. Maybe I'll try to read just a few of these verses. I didn't realize it would be so long at this particular time. I should have known. <clears throat> Here's a story from Jesus. And he spoke a parable to those who were bidden to this feast when he marked how they chose out the chief seats. People come to a feast, they all jostle for the most important position saying to them, when thou art bidden of any man to a marriage feast, sit not down in the chief seat, lest happily a more honorable man than you be bidden of him. And he, he that bade thee and him shall come and say to thee, I don't know how I got the King James in here, give this man place, and then thou shalt begin with shame to take the lowest place. So you go muscle your way to the, to the right next to the bride and groom, you may find out that the bride's mother shows up and now you're getting kicked out and you're going to the back of the line. And you have to take that place with shame. But you're bidden, go sit down in the lowest place. And then when he that hath bidden thee cometh, he may say to thee, friend, go up higher. And then thou shalt have glory in the presence of, of all that sit at meat with thee. So Jesus is saying, 
be, stop thinking about yourself and stop being neglectful of other people in the way that you approach life. It's a symptom of pride. The humble man will sit there and he'll be happy whether he gets sent up to the front or not sent up to the front. And he says, but everyone who exalts himself shall be humble. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. And he said to him that also were bidden, he said to him also that had bidden him, the master of the feast, when you make a dinner or supper, call not your friends nor your brethren nor your kinsmen nor your rich neighbors. Let's happily they bid thee again and a recompense be made. Don't just ask people that can do something for you to your feast. But when you make a feast, bid the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed because they have not wherewith to recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed in the resurrection of the just. I'm going to try to start doing that more. That passage means something, doesn't it? It means you should do something about this. Don't just invite people that can do something for you. Don't just do good to those who make who are your friends or that have something. Uh, try to think about people that don't have anything. And, and yes, it may not be the best thing, but he said you'll be stop. You'll stop neglecting other people around you. Then the last scripture: Search me, O God, in Psalm one thirty nine, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good way to close this sermon. We need to search our hearts. We need to search what's inside and why we do the things that we do. And I bid you to do that this morning. We're going to close our service now uh, with a song that has been selected by Brother Joel. Uh, Number 382 has been selected. Kneel at the cross. This is a time for you to reflect upon what we've, what we've said and what you've been thinking about. And if you need to, come to the front. We'll pray with you if you'd like to, to talk with us about a sin. If you need to repent of something before this audience or perhaps there's something you're struggling with you want to talk about, come to the front and we'll pray with you. If you need to be baptized into Christ today, this is a good time to do that. We'd be glad to help you. Everybody here would rejoice. So if you're ready, you come right to the front. Let's stand and sing.